welcome to the Two World Podcast, where you can hear thoughts and reflections on unique intersections between faith and culture. Tune in regularly for this foray into feelings of surprise and interconnectedness and aha moments in life when two worlds come together. Now join your hosts, Barney and Jacob, for this most recent episode. Welcome to another edition of the Two World Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jacob Dotson, and my other co-host isn't available right now, but he'll be joining the conversation shortly. But I'm really excited to welcome a guest today, and his name is... Matt Capizzuto. And we invited Matt onto our episode today to talk about a very specific type of art um, from a unique era in American history, and we're really looking forward to that. So we're going to hear a little bit about Johannes Whistler and some unique examples of handwriting and um, doodling. And it's going to be just a wonderful opportunity for us just to explore the topic in general of of handwriting and drawing. And so welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for uh, making time for this. Oh, we really appreciate it. And I know yeah. when Barney gets on here, he'll he'll say the same. <laughs> we appreciate you taking time. Yeah. Um, and would you just be willing to share just briefly um, a little bit about your own connection to art and art education? Like um, how did you get involved with, with art and art education? Sure. Um... Well, I started out as an artist. Uh, I studied art, you know, from high school and then into college, uh, studied painting, um, art history. I you know, was really into history as well and um, went on immediately to graduate school and studied painting some more. <laughs> and as anybody who is involved in the arts knows, um, it's not you know there's no really clear career trajectory and most of the artists you've met up to that point are teaching artists <laughs> so it seems very clear that you you know teaching is a is a serious option and also really a, a not i was going to say lucrative but it's not <laughs> not a lucrative option but a um it, you know it it's fruitful in terms of getting you know creating discourse and creating dialogue and 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 opening you up to new pathways um so i started teaching in a couple of ways um teaching you know as an adjunct in co college classes and then teaching portfolio classes um for like high school students and um eventually i wanted to go back to school uh, and I studied art education, um, earned a doctoral degree in art education. And, um, that's sort of what precipitated, uh, my involvement, involvement in museum education. Um, because I was, I was always felt that when I was teaching, you know, maybe once a semester, I could bring my students to a museum um but it was very it was always sort of treated as an additional thing and sort of you know um it was just always sort of tacked on and i felt like 
going back to my earlier days as a student, looking at art, looking at things, you know, we didn't have a lot of access to museums per se, but um, I would spend hours and hours just pouring through the books in the library stacks, like in the art section, you know, just looking at all these different pictures and seeing things from all over the world. And um, so anyway, I wanted to really just open my students up to seeing more art and especially seeing it in person. And um, so, so then I got involved in, uh, uh, I became a, a museum fellow at the American Folk Art Museum, which is where I was introduced to this artifact that we are going to talk a little bit more about today. And um, yeah, let me know if that's a good yeah, start. That's a great start. Yes. Yeah, so you did this, this fellowship at the American Folk Art Museum and it's there that you learned about this book of arithmetic problems of Johannes Whistler. And mm -hmm. um, what makes this book a significant historical artifact? Yeah. Um, would you like me to show you the, the book? Yeah, please. Okay. Let me just cue it up here. So, um, just a second technical oh yes stuff <laughs> all right here we go um oh you like play oh let me open that up oh nice um so yeah the so this book um i got into this because so as a as a student of art education i was learning about you know artistic development, developmental psychology, and, you know, how do, um, you know, especially looking at teenagers and how they typically develop artistically and the, the sort of affordances and challenges that they face. And um, so I was, you know, in this situation at the museum, I just wanted to see if there were any works that were made by adolescents so that I could um, just sort of make some sense of what was going on, right? It's a folk art museum. So I thought chances are there might be something made by adolescents, right? Um, and there really weren't that many examples. This was one of them. And in the end, it didn't, it wasn't such a huge deal that it was made by an adolescent. And I can get into why um, that is too. Like, our definition of adolescence as we think about it today is um, not necessarily historically how adolescents have been viewed or even how they've, um, you know, in terms of like the human life cycle, um, our, our contemporary adolescents are not like those that lived 200 years ago. <laughs> um, so I, I I'm not literally like that well-versed to get into why that is, but um, needless to say, I got more involved in just sort of appreciating this for what it is. And especially looking at, um, you know, all the different letter forms and things like the reason that this is in a folk art museum, I would argue is that 
mainly because of the um, artwork in it. Like if you see on the right side there, these full page drawings. Um, and as you mentioned, this is, there are a few of these in this book. And what this book is, is a, is a ciphering book, which is like a math exercise book where um, from around the, uh, you know, maybe the 13th century, people used to uh, learn um, algorithms and, uh, you know, all the math that they would use for mercantile trades and things like that. They would learn that by sort of copying problems into their ciphering book or exercise book. Um, so this is like a long running tradition. Um, and then it, it sort of begins in Italy, um, and, and, uh, sort of spreads throughout central Europe. And of course they're drawing from Arabic practices too. So it really begins even before that. Um, and so as it spreads through Europe and then into the United States and then, you know, other parts of North America, um, the practice sort of takes on its unique local um, flavors, you know. So you have different looking ciphering books in different places. So in the Pennsylvania German context, um, you have ciphering books that will include drawings like this. And what this is known as is, um, at least the style, is typically referred to as fractur. And um, fractur is basically like a shorthand for, um, let me see if I can, oh, here it is at the Folk Art Museum. Fractur is sort of literally the style of handwriting, sort of like what you see up here in the upper left um heading but it came to be applied to these manuscripts and these drawings it reminds that... me a little bit if you've if our audience has seen um, examples of the old german script i don't know if that's called a gothic mm -hmm. script i'm trying to remember what it's called but yeah um but yeah. in old, old type and in, in german books um with s's having this long uh shape right. and, yeah yeah fractor or... is a type of gothic script it's a it's a little bit more modern. I think it was developed around the end of the 15th century. Um, and so it it's sort of a little like an update on, on that sort of old, mm. old Gothic script that we're familiar with. Um, and it literally means broken, but it's, you know, it basically means that the strokes are sort of, you know, broken up. Um, it's not that different from the way other Gothic scripts are written. Um, so, so Fractor is, and some people might be familiar with this, it's a whole um, body of manuscripts, typically single page documents that could be birth certificates or uh, marriage, um, sort of like marriage certificates, uh, etc um house blessings that were created in the pennsylvania german context um typically by 
in Anabaptist communities. Um, and they weren't, you know, they're not like governmental um, documents. They're, they're more of sort of commemorative uh, sort of signs of, of piety, um, like personal piety. Um, so that sort of fractor in, in brief, um, I don't have a lot of examples to show you a fractor per se, but, um, this is another page of the book here. Mm, it's beautiful. Wow. Oh, sorry. So, um, we can get more into that, but I thought yeah. maybe before we get too far into the history, because my, to, to get back to, um, sort of my interest in Fractor, which is not so much as a historian, but as an art educator. Um, I was just curious why, you know, where does this artifact come from? Why is it made in the way that it is? What would make somebody invest so much time? And I would say real personal motivation into creating these elaborate scripts especially for something as seemingly mundane as a math notebook right like it's sort of a little discordant with what i think our experiences are of math <laughs> math notebooks but um you know you had brought up the question of uh i think you know what 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 is our experience of doodling, for example, or like drawing in our math notebooks? Yeah. Compare, and you know, how does that compare to these? Um, and I think everybody has, you know, probably different experience. I mean, but I think the, the important thing is that, you know, this was created in a context where this kind of object was imbued with so much importance. Um, and you know, you have to put yourself back in that era where a blank notebook was really a thing of value. And this is like a leather bound book. All the pages are, you know, linen rag uh, page. Like the paper is really high quality compared to the composition books that we got in, in school, right? So this is actually something that Whistler kept throughout his life and, um, you know, it's like a valuable object. And then on top of that, it's something that he would have used, uh, to leverage, um, his role as a schoolmaster later on. And, um, he used it, uh, to sort of write copy as a, uh, scrivener, you know, somebody who was able to write up legal documents and things like that. So it's, hmm. it's really something that, like I said, is imbued with so much importance in addition to having these sort of pietistic, these like religious um, drawings and documents that are inserted in them. And in some cases were taken out of it and given to other people. Yeah. Um, so, May I um, just kind of mirror back to you what I'm hearing? Um, so during this fellowship, you come across this artifact 
you yourself are an art educator, particularly interested in adolescence and how does art impact their life? And then you see this historical example of an adolescent creating this beautiful work of art alongside their math um, problems that they're also practicing and copying. And so, wow, here's an example to dive deeper into the psychology of a young person creating art and it's bringing together things you wouldn't normally expect. Why is that the case? And there's all these like um, questions that it's like a mystery or you're digging deeper into try to try to determine what were the influences and how did this come together? Is it, would you say pretty uncommon to find a ciphering book with this much calligraphy or um, handwriting in it? Is it kind of rare from that standpoint? Do you have a lot of other similar examples from that era or? Um. I'd say it's rare. Um, you know, it's hard to tell how rare this is in the grand scheme of things because a lot of things might have been lost, right? We don't, because these wouldn't be things that are necessarily well taken care of. Um, one can assume that a lot of fractor documents are gone forever, you know, because they're paper. Um, and a lot of people would just sort of store them in furniture that's that stuff may have been discarded and just forgotten about um you know especially back in the uh, 19th century there would have been more um maybe opportunities for mold and bugs and things to eat it so a lot of fractor is probably missing in that way some people were buried with fractor documents um so um but in terms of what is in existence now like what we have now it's um, a really great example because it's a very complete example of a you know a bound volume with all this stuff in it whereas in some cases with any rare book or manuscript you know they're often chopped up and different parts are sold off auctioned off to different people um, you know, because of the rise of the market for what we call folk art today. And um, so I would say, yeah, this is a great rare example in terms of what's out there now. There are some other, not I wouldn't say maybe not from the Pennsylvania German context, but you will see some uh, Pennsylvania German books uh, in other collections i looked a lot at um the winterthur uh libraries collection in um you know in delaware um they have a really great collection of exercise books and also fractor um and but i would say i don't think any of them are quite this like elaborate in terms of all the different headings and lettering styles and the um the the watercolors um so this is sort of a unique example it's also sort of comes out of left field i feel because it's from cumberland county which wasn't necessarily a huge source of fractor you know usually that's associated more with further east in pennsylvania closer to philadelphia um, Lancaster County and such. So it's a, it is a unique object in that way. Um, 
but it's one of many, you know, it's, it's part of a, a larger sort of field, uh, a larger, just this culture, um, where there, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think the author, the creator was going for a masterpiece, so to speak, you know, it fit within their own life goals and, you know, what they wanted for themselves. And, um, and I would assume it, it, it performed for them what they wanted it to do. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting. What I would love to go deeper, maybe in a little bit with um, Whistler's art and um, other aspects of the, the book, but um, I want to connect this a little bit with the modern context. And like you said, we typically don't consider our modern learning standards and approach um, with math as paralleling this um, ciphering uh, tradition. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I know I did have math notebooks over the years personally, and I'd often throw them away after so long. Um, they were often spiral bound and you know, I might doodle in them some, um, you had mentioned in his case, this was like a leather bound, high quality book. Um, the pages were a nice weight and quality. Um, but, uh, did you, do you remember having math notebooks? Did you doodle in your math books? Like, what was that like for you? Do you have any memory of that? I'm sure I did, but I'm sure it was, you know, not as, I mean, what, you know, usually when I think of doodling, it's, you know, you have your math, probably, you know, just really basic handwriting. And, and then you've got on the side, on the margins, maybe doodling, right? Like a pattern or something, something just to sort of fill the time. And there are arguments that doodling is, um, can actually help people focus you know, it helps people listen because, um, it's sort of, a an outlet. Um, and I mean, I don't quite like a fidget whole... spinner, so, so to speak, Yeah, yeah. like some of your nervous energy is pointed that way, but the other part of your brain can engage. Right. And even the, the doodling is sort of a, a way of, yeah, like, um, anchoring you to what's going on you know it can help mm -hmm. you sort of focus because it's and i feel like doodling and writing in general just helps us sort of connect some concrete experience with whatever it is we might be listening to or or copying if we're copying something um but yeah i, I so if we were to i mean this is just obviously it a crazy hypothetical situation, but if we were somehow able to recover one of your math books or one of my <laughs> math books and like, yeah. look at some of those doodles, could we have um, understood very much about us? Um, could we have had a deeper picture of who we are just from those doodles or is something in Whistler's form of that going much further? I mean, I, I guess it all depends on the individual but like just taking yourself, for example, in your adolescence and maybe what you were trying to do, could people have deduced some things about you from your doodling, do you think, from your math notebooks? 
Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of, I mean, we're all, we're all sort of stewing in whatever culture we're in and we're all sort of surrounded by and informed by that. So, you know, there's always these memes, you know, cultural memes that I think work their way into doodling. I think some things are probably very un, um, undirected, you know, they don't have a, like, for example, you might be just be drawing a mindless sort of pattern, right? Um, but in other cases, we might draw like a cartoon character or something that is loosely based on all the cartoon characters we've seen before. And uh, so I think there's always the potential for those, you know, the visual culture to seep into what we're doing. I would say with regard to Whistler, um, you know, his, I mean, maybe we can again bring up an example. Um, you know, if we look at what's going on here, everything is sort of in line with um, the task at hand, which is to do these like very elaborate letter forms. So the doodling tends to happen within that narrow um, task, you know, like adding these little flourishes to the A here or this little like wiggly twisting not work or adding some flourish to his um, his uh, handwriting in the body of the page. Um, and then there are sometimes those little drawings that that appear but it tends to be a little more purposeful i think hmm. than maybe some of our doodling okay in our in our books so it might not be the case that um whistler, whistler was just sitting there um doodling to just be present in the moment while learning something else i mean maybe there's a little like in some of these cases he was in applying quite a bit of intentionality to the craft of trying to um, produce something beautiful and lasting and not something that will be discarded, but something that he might keep with him for many years. Um, and so he wanted right. it to be yeah. um, a special yeah. thing. Mm. And something that other people might see and, mm. you know, he might be trying to impress upon, you know, the, you know, again, thinking about this as something that could serve as a sort of a resume or a, uh, mm. a reflection of learning. Okay. Um, so as a schoolmaster, you know, if, if you wanted to become a schoolmaster, you would have to have something like this as evidence of your learning, because you, as a, as a parent of a kid, you would expect them to basically sort of mirror what the schoolmaster's abilities are right like they, they the schoolmaster passes on their handwriting ability their um calligraphy the the their mathematic knowledge mm -hmm. and in the case of a pennsylvania german context 
um, this type of illumination um, would be valuable as well. Um, yeah. Well, well, um, can I once again, just try to mirror back a little bit at what I'm hearing. Um, so it seems like there was some form of, of, of notebook in that era that, that is almost kind of like today, how we think of, of almost like a, a portfolio or, you know, people were going to use this. It was going to open up new opportunities. So um, they weren't cavalier when they wrote in it and just um, lacking purpose. Often most probably entries and things that were done in that notebook were very purposeful because they most likely would be shared with others. So that's a very different, if, if I'm hearing you right, is that, is that the sense? Yeah. So yeah. That's a very different assumption or posture towards the, the act of, of writing in the notebook, then say maybe a notebook like we have in math class that we're most likely at the end of the semester going to discard um, and most likely keep to ourselves. Unless if we go to somebody's you know, room and we're trying to study together, they might look at our page for a certain part, but it's not for the reason of like displaying our calligraphy or art. So there was just a very different culture around um, the math, the a book of math problems and the, and what he was doing with it. Um, well, it, if I may, I, I want to try to talk a little bit about like some contemporary connections with that. And then maybe some dissonance where we really lack what he had with that. Um, oh, because yeah. I feel like um, I was mentioning this to you before we started recording our youngest child, Hannah is learning cursive right now in school. Mm. And she has mentioned that several of her friends who go to different schools can't read her cursive writing. They haven't learned cursive. And so she sent the messages before and they, and they are telling her, you know, like, what are you saying? And so she's come to Katie, my wife, and, and said like, why are we learning this in school? Why is this important? If not, everybody can read it. And I was thinking, oh, like one of the unintended consequences of us um, being so tied in with keyboards and typing as we have truly stepped away from the practice of handwriting and we're losing that art. It, maybe not all of us, but large swaths of our maybe population aren't thinking about that. I know for me personally, I do much more typing than handwriting. Um, mm -hmm. But the Same. counterpoint to that, I, I still feel like I, I've watched all of my kids um, doodling and I'm, I, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, like I, I work in a church context. And so like, sometimes I'll watch them doodling in church, like, or if I go up and I'm sharing a message, um, sometimes when I come back, I'll, I'll notice what they wrote when I was talking. And it's interesting to see a word or a phrase pop up in the art sometimes. I, and I particularly, my wife, Katie, we have like a bulletin that has information in it, but then she'll often doodle in the little notes section of that. And for me, I've come to like, depend on looking at that sometimes to think like, what was heard? What jumped out to her? Was that a good message? I don't know. And sometimes I just, I'll look at the doodle and I'll think, well, that jumped out to her. And that's a point that I thought was really important. I'm glad, or she embellished this particular thing. And so I feel like, you right. know, and we haven't really jumped into this yet, but you know, the dimension of, of, in that case, uh, writing, connecting with thought and grounding us, like you said, with, with what we're hearing, but then also connecting it with 
the part of Whistler's background too, of there can be a connection with spirituality that, um, that writing can be a form of expression of presence or a, like a spiritual practice or a, a sense of being present and um, it being a holy moment or a meaningful moment that you, that you are more able to enter into by the act of, of writing or drawing, like thinking back, like, like you mentioned before, I think the illuminated manuscript tradition, you know, like the, the act of, mm-hmm. of, of recording scripture and, and copying it was a spiritual of spiritual practice and the the way that the manuscripts were illuminated were meant to enhance the reader's awe and appreciation of the words and of of God. So you know it's like a maybe a, a ripe area to say like even today in that in the subtle little context of my small little church in Ohio, I can see some form of this connection between this writing and doodling and spirituality playing out on some level, you know, maybe not on the level yeah, of Whistler, yeah. but you know, so I don't know. I want to throw right. that out there and get your thoughts a little bit in reaction. As you hear that story, like, yeah. are there any like connectors in your brain between things you've read about or you've seen? And, uh, and... Absolutely. Too many to count. <laughs> Cause like, I think it, it sort of points to this, um, you know, I, I, I guess a sort of, dichotomy you know there are things that i think are in a way inherently human at least in the sense that how we use language um and then there is the sort of way that culture i think formalizes it right so in the case that you just talked about you know the cultural sort of outlet is happens to be like doodling in the margins of a church bulletin, which isn't really a, it isn't a uh, formalized practice, you know, like there isn't this widespread phenomenon that people are intentionally engaging in. (laughs) Uh, Maybe in like a hundred years, somebody will collect all the (laughs) church bulletins and make a museum exhibition. Um, But uh you know, there's a long history and tradition of, as you said, um, the sort of intuiting that there is a a power or almost like a spirituality to words and to letters, um, and especially in the Christian tradition um, that, you know, um, that words can have a sort of you know the word of god like capital w word um is a sort of reflection of or a uh, points to the divine nature of the universe or something i'm not a religious scholar but <laughs> um but then you can access the divine through the word but also you know the sort of raw stuff that makes up the word which are words and letters and so that you know there there is a an access to the divine through words and um and we tend to yeah i think we imbue words with power and i do think it's sort of a it goes back to something very deep in how we as humans process language um and we we actually uh, respond to it in a very visceral way um 
as opposed to a you know symbolic coding kind of way um so the you know i i mentioned in the dissertation this sort of story which will resonate i think with anybody familiar with elon musk's uh neuralink I think that's what it's called, Neuralink, right? The thing yes. where he wants to put chips in people's brains. And, you know, the, the the main thrust of it is noble, I think. Like giving people people who have um, disabilities or might be paralyzed in some part of their body um, the ability to use that part of their body again. You know, that's very noble. And, you know, this is also separate. You know, there's Elon Musk and then there's everybody who all the scientists who actually make the stuff. Right. Um, and Musk. Um, and I, I just saw this in the news again recently, maybe he like tweeted it or something that, um, that he foresees a future in which we can just send our sort of messages or intentions directly, like through telepathy, basically like through our minds. Right. And it cuts out language, which he says is, um, you know, it's sort of a way of compressing thought and then it has to be decompressed. And like all this process is very inefficient. You know, basically the, the thrust of it is that, is that language is inefficient for transmitting um, intention thought right and i think that's a completely wrong-headed way of thinking about language because language in language is first of all there's the affective aspect of language when we use language it's just full of feeling and affect and that can't be you know i can't think of a like how do you transmit something without a medium for that thing right and also language is something that's always um it's in the moment it's something that transmits meaning in the moment as we're speaking we're reacting to our own speech right and um so like even now as i'm talking to you um i don't know what i'm going to say <laughs> until i say it basically right and then as i say it i have i'm responding to myself in real time and so, you know, language itself is this very, like, visceral, um, concrete, and, and you know, it's just full of, of affect, even though we don't, we don't want to see it all the time, and we don't think about it all the time. You know, I don't know if this will piggyback well on what you're saying, but I just think a little bit about how years ago, if you wanted to show somebody that you cared about them, you might write them a letter. And then, you know, eventually that gets shortened to an email. And then sometimes mm -hmm. that gets shortened to a text message. And now we're saying like, let's take it out of the realm of even text being produced and have it be like a, a projected thought. So it's like the, the degree of time it takes to express an emotion of care is costing us less and less time to, you know, they, they say it's the thought that counts, but like on some, 
on some level, sometimes time invested is also an expression of, of, of thought. And so, you know, people say words are cheap. Well, like could split second thoughts be taken as cheap, <laughs> extra cheap. I mean, if it takes just a second to be like, Oh, I'm sorry that happened to you today. You know, I'm thinking of you and it, like a mental thought is like, right. it goes out the transmitter to, and is received by somebody else's transmitter. I mean, that's a nice thought, I guess that they know the person, but how much less time does that take than even, I know Musk would say, well, it's inefficient to write a card and you know, it takes a lot of time. You have to mail it, but you know, right. But there's something meaningful about the time that was taken. And um, right. I mean, that's in addition to the words themselves being effective, as you said, um, and um, rich and, and conveying meaning. Um, yeah, I think. And, and just. I know that, you know, language is in a way. Mimetic, you know, we're always sort of just, you know, one way of looking at it is we're always just repeating or copying what we know. Like we're almost like parrots or something, right? Um, but there's also something to be said for the struggle of language. You know, when you do have to write a letter or a card, it's really heartfelt. And then confronting the lack of depth. I'm not talking about you, Jacob, but my <laughs> from my own personal perspective, you know, the lack of depth I have in terms of language to really express something that I feel is appropriate for that situation um, and really challenging yourself to, to reach for that depth. Uh, I think we all really need to, to do that. Um, you know, just to sort of, again, like be in touch with each other. Um, I, you know, like now as you're typing something, google or whatever will um you know finish your sentences for you <laughs> so it's like more and more that struggle is being taken away from us but yeah like at what at what cost to i mean it sounds very dramatic but yeah like we we need to feel things we need to be in touch with that side of ourselves um so um, we're at a very different place in human history than Whistler was and the pressures that we face that limit or impact how we write or, or draw um, are very different than pressures or influences in, in his day. Um, but you, it seems like you're drawing inspiration from him for modern um, art education. It seems like it's alive in your imagination. I mean, from what I'm sensing, just looking at parts of your dissertation, like you mentioned at one point, um, you yourself like to engage in, in doodling or, or you call it meta doodling, you know, and, and, and how you recognize that's a meaningful practice for you today. Can you kind of articulate how you could see the fruits of this time with Whistler um, kind of infusing what you're doing now and, and some parts of it that could inspire us as we're trying to learn more about it, um, like to kind of re rediscover or reimagine some of the things that he had done, but now in our context. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Meta doodling is not, is not my term. I can't remember the name of the uh, author, but the, the idea is like meta, meta doodling is sort of taking doodling to, 
the level where it is it becomes um, more like intentional and sort of a work of art per se. Like you could turn it into a larger work of art. Um, I would say, you know, as a painter, I, um, I don't even know if I'd call it doodling, but there's a lot of repetition and time invested in my work and sort of building up small patterns into larger images. And it, I guess in that way, I, um, I sort of think of it in, in, as somehow related. I don't know what exactly the relation is, but it's that sort of um, time commitment and being so lost in the process, which is something I used to have a lot more tolerance for uh, as a younger person. But as I get older and I have more responsibilities, I find that the time, uh, becomes it feels heavier you know um so that's an interesting thing too it's, it's it's curious to think that maybe that is part of whistler's you know the significance of his adolescence maybe it is in there this time the the, the willingness and ability to lose yourself in a process like that um Yeah. So, so, so could I, could I just kind of, um, dig a little bit there for a second? Mm -hmm. So, um, like you had mentioned a little bit before, um, even today during the podcast, but also in your dissertation, like Whistler was influenced by his Anabaptist heritage, which, you know, this fractor was an expression of the spirituality of not only valuing the word, like often a lot of fracture would be of like scripture verses, right. Or phrases. Mm -hmm. um, but also like the spiritual practice of, 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 of writing, um, creating something beautiful as almost like an act of, I don't know if you want to say worship towards God or, um, a, as an expression of your, yeah, almost like a spiritual practice in a sense, um, which takes, um, th there's inherent value in spiritual practices to help a person grow and, have a certain mindset and focus to what they're doing. And so like, I know you're not necessarily at the moment um, talking about like a spiritual practice, but I'm hearing, maybe you're saying mindful practices or, or like taking time. Would you say that, that as an artist, like some of your craft is a practice, like a life practice that has some kind of other value other than just producing you know, the art, like it's transformative for you as an artist, it, the, the actual action of, of taking the time and doing the motions and, and shaping or painting is changing you too. Um, yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, has it, yeah, I mean, it may have, it's hard to tell, right? <laughs> Cause there's no, um, control, <laughs> you know, there's no, um, nothing to compare it to. Uh, but I do feel like, especially like, you know, in the, in my development as an artist, um, I think it, you know, at, at that earlier stage in my life, it definitely helped to, um, prepare me for, uh, 
what I would do later. Like my artwork back then in my 20s or my late teens was not the same as it is now, but a lot of the same uh, effort, a lot of the same like time-based uh, sort of re repetition, um, that sort of commitment was there. And a lot of people would look at that and say, you're you're weird like <laughs> you know that's different like not many people would be willing to sit there and make the same brush stroke over and over um although there are artists you know that are out there that are known for that and maybe even in a more extreme way but um so yeah i think it prepared me for that um and maybe it prepared me to see something in whistler's book that um isn't necessarily obvious to everybody um yeah so go ahead i'm sorry no i'm just i'm you know for me my my biggest connecting point because i don't have a background in art history um is from the spiritual aspect because i'm in the met currently serving a church in the mennonite tradition so like the part of your dissertation, when you talk about um, Anabaptists and the Mennonite influence on Whistler's work, oh, my antenna come up. I'm like, oh, like what elements of that are still present today? And what are what elements are different? Um, do we still have some of those aspects of our spirituality today of where the um, the daily practices of, of creating something, writing something are integrated into like a spiritual lifestyle or spirituality? Because I think the Anabaptist tradition today still has this desire in a lot of ways to have like a holistic approach to life, you know, in terms of, um, you know, mm -hmm. the food that you eat and, uh, um, the seeking after environment, environmental sustainability, certain like everyday justice decisions of where you buy your products and trying to have an integrated life approach to the, your shopping can be an extension of your spiritual practice, for example, or your, um, like for him, his writing and his doodling. And um, so I see elements of that. And then um, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, um, I know you're coming from it more from the angle of, uh, of an art historian or art educator, but I'm trying to see like, is there an, is there an overlapping interest here in this idea of practices as a transformative um, part of life? Um, and then I also wanted to ask, you had used this term and I wanna see if I can find it again about uh, distributed creativity. Um, and is that, do I have that right? Um, yeah. And can you help us understand like in the creation of art or music or everyday objects, um, what does this kind of theory of distributed creativity teach us and how does it help us understand these things and the artists that make them? Yeah. Um, so distributed creativity, it comes out of creativity studies, which is its own feel like a sort of subfield of um, psychology and um, distributed creativity, at least from my understanding of it, largely comes from Vlad Glavianu. Um, and then also my, one of my dissertation sponsors, uh, Michael Hanschett Hansen, uh, he's also involved in what is termed participatory creativity and the two are sort of related in the sense that they're both um, sort of social 
approaches to creativity and like systems-based approaches to creativity. So when we think like a common way of thinking about creativity is usually that it's like a trait and some people have it and some people don't, or that some people are more creative than others. Um, or that there are, you know, some really creative works in the world that really transform the world. And of course that is true in a way. Um, but from the perspective of distributed creativity, the focus is more on the system. It's almost like an e ecology of creativity, right? That creativity emerges um, out of a system that's based on, you know, actors, like meaning, you know, people who do things and then audiences, which are the people who um, appreciate the creative work, right? But also audiences can be other like peer groups in the field that can influence how actors do what they do. And then there are artifacts, which is the actual, um, you know, the stuff that is made. So there are five A's we're getting through. That's number three. And then, uh, there are affordances, which are, you know, whatever is out there that allows somebody to do something creative. So it could be material, you know, sort of just like what materials do you have available to you that or resources that allow you to make something and what is it made out of? And then action, which is, you know, action what what sort of ties things together and it's also it's something um you know there are different time scales that you can look at creativity happening so <clears throat> you know in my dissertation i looked at this sort of system the ecology of creativity that was um that whistler was in you know, and sort of looking at the history that predated that and sort of what he was likely coming out of, um, but also the history after that, which is the emergence of folk art as a field and the appreciation of folk art, which is something that didn't exist in his time. You know, no people were not collecting fractor as art as they do now or you know since the beginning of the 20th century um so you know creativity is very context dependent and as we can see here like something that was creative or whatever you know it was created in one context can become creative for a totally different reason in another context um okay well can i so i want to try to apply this uh, idea if i'm getting it right to uh, a question so like if today we're, we've been talking about um whistler's um drawing and his handwriting and if we wanted to challenge ourselves and our audience for example and we want to say like how can we do more in our own daily routines with handwriting and drawing, if we wanted to discover that 
practice or that expression, like as a challenge to ourselves to give more space for that expression mm-hmm. in our lives. Um, can, um, this awareness that we're part of a system like, um, that there are these actors, there's this context, can that help us ultimately, if we become more aware of that to express our creativity or can it encourage us? Like all the elements are already there. We just need to kind of open up to it. It's not like we either possess creativity or we don't, it's inherent in our system that we we're in, right? It's kind of about discovering it, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm using the theory the wrong way because maybe it's more a descriptive tool, but it seems like the concept about creativity being distributed all around us is kind of an empowering thing. And part of me wants to connect it to this idea of holistic living in practice. Like is the Mm -hmm. system inherent, uh, inherently also kind of inviting us to try to be holistic and practice some more creativity. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably taking this in, well, in a way that's not intended. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it's such a, it's such a, not like a, it's a complicated question because it, yeah. I mean, you have to question what, you know, what is the society that we're, given you know what do we live in and what are the opportunities what are the affordances for creativity that we have and um and of course there are you know myriad affordances depending on if you're willing to take the the sort of inherent risk of trying to do something creative which is that maybe it will not be appreciated by anybody especially, you know, in your given context. Um, So I think sort of also what you're getting at is, um, which is something as an art educator, you know, we always face this question, like there's, there's a real feeling that people are often feeling beaten down and just not trusting in the process of creativity or their own ability to engage in creative practice um and often because of the sort of formula that we take for granted about creativity which is that some people are creative and some people are not and some people do valuable things and some people don't um and then you have some people who are able to push past that and just make whatever they want to make. Um, And then sometimes those things are treated as outsider art or folk art or something, you know, they, they just, uh, cause maybe they don't dovetail or the, the, you know, that person might not have the right education or something. Um, So there are, um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, yeah. I think like what you're saying is, yeah, there are opportunities to be creative. There are a lot of also challenges just inherent in the way that our society is structured that tell people like, you're not creative. Don't do that. Like, you know, yeah, you don't deserve it. You haven't worked for it. You don't, you know, you're not adding anything of value. 
you know, I, I guess maybe the type of question that I'm asking, and I'll try to ask it in a different way, because um, I think I was trying to connect it with this distributive creativity concept. And I think I should just ask it independently of that is like um, th- these expressions in Whistler's book, um, the um, handwriting, the, the drawing is like very, was very meaningful for him. Like, and he shared it with other people and like, it seemed to be an important part of his, I mean, if we've put him in the context of his community, a part of his spirituality it brought something meaningful and good to his life. It contributed positively to who he became and what he did. Like, mm-hmm. so like for me, I'm just going to put on my, my vocational hat here. Like as a pastor, like I'm trying to empower and encourage the people within the community that I serve to um, find healthy outlets, not only for their spiritual life with God, but also to like, to live an abundant life and to, you know, have outlets for their brain to, to create things and to enjoy the gifts that they've been given and to use them. And, you know, I guess one of my questions is like, like in our digital age where consuming is such an emphasis, like how do we, you know, encourage people like, is it, are there certain practices we recommend or how do we invite (laughs) and support them in, and taking time out of the consumption cycle to like create or to make space for that to happen. Like, for example, we've talked about handwriting. Is handwriting still a valid expression of creativity that we rec- would recommend to others in the digital age where typing is so much more mm-hmm. prominent? Like I- I'm asking for your opinion. Like, do you think that's a good practice? Or I, I don't know if you get the gist of what I'm saying. I'm kind of trying to right. take your study and like push it to the level of like where, what would be a takeaway or um, like a recommendation to have a healthier life today in light of, you know, what we've appreciated from Whistler. If you can take it that way, I don't know if that's. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, uh, handwriting is, I do think that handwriting, everybody should, I mean, it would be hypocritical of me to say, yeah, everybody should be handwriting because <laughs> I don't <laughs> do it a lot. But um, it is sort of like a. Um, but I do, you know, I make art and I do things like that. So in a way, I'm like tapping into something for myself that's related. Um, I think handwriting could be one outlet um but there are all sorts of ways of being creative uh like what you're doing right now is creative you're making a podcast um and you're you know adding something um yeah it's a really good question because it's you could say you could recommend to people to create a, you know, form a quilting bee or something. I don't know what they call no. them, but or take on some uh, craft. Uh, mm. But you, you know, I think what your question is also getting to something deeper is like, what is the, you know, what is the meaning of like, what is that giving people access to that they otherwise don't have access to? Um, is it a social outlet? Is it a, you know, do they, are they able to unlock 
aspects of themselves that they sort of weren't in touch with before through the medium of you know making something physical and responding to it and engaging in that process um i mean i think those are valid points as well um but i think also what you what, the way you're phrasing it also makes me think that you're you know it's like you're also asking how can people affect their environment and hmm. improve the lives of the people around them as well yeah yeah and i think what i'm hearing you say and please correct me if i'm wrong is we shouldn't focus on whistler's particular form of the handwriting and the the drawing as saying oh we must recreate that but more mm -hmm. rather the space of taking time to create something beautiful in whatever modern like uh, vehicle we choose to do that with. So it's not that necessarily that we have to imitate his handwriting, um, like the act of writing and the way that he did, but it's more like finding our own vehicle for expressing uh, our create creativity and creative energy in our context that works for us is maybe I was getting a little too caught up, hung up on, Oh, it has to be handwriting or, I mean, the handwriting on the one hand, it slows us down. And it's an art that would be sad if it were lost by humanity, but that hopefully there'll always be some among us who keep it going. But it doesn't mean like we have to lead a charge for our audience to say, everybody has to recover this. It, but it's more like an invitation, like let's try to be mindful to take some time away from consuming things to find something that gives us mental space to, you know, if, if it's a spiritual thing, encounter God and let it speak to you in some, some way that, you can write about or draw about or sing about or, or just think about, or if it's a, just more, right. more of a, if it's not a spiritual thing, if it's just part of your everyday life, just giving you space to think. And um, I don't know, get away from yeah, yeah. like, almost like the concept of stepping away from consumption maybe is also part of it too. It's in just giving space, space for thinking and thought or prayer um space for rest <laughs> it's a lot of yeah. different things there yeah i mean but how your your reactions i think are they help me sort of think reflect too on sort of you know i don't know the it's it, the, the the whole process of look digging into this and and like you said like trying to find the importance or locate the significance of uh, Whistler's book like for us today and uh, you know it's 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 sort of like I can feel it but I it's hard to really it was a it, it's a it's an ongoing process of <laughs> articulating what it is and I I do think you know part of it of course was the language aspect of it and like the affective nature of language that i wanted to i wanted to get that through you know that um because i do think we tend to be stuck in this way of thinking that um everything can sort of just be read as like a symbol of something else like this is there's a one-to-one -one ratio, mm -hmm. ratio between 
even in like a visual art form, you know, we get trapped in these ways of thinking that are, this symbolizes that, this is that. And actually we're sort of detaching ourselves from the, the feeling of it and just letting ourselves mm. react to it. Um, in a more sensory sensory level you know mm. uh, oh there's two there's two directions i want to go right now and i'm trying to pick which one part of it part of it is about whistler's background and and um the uh the kind of anabaptist understanding of education of his day which i understood to be somewhat skeptical about more um higher uh what, what would you call higher esteemed like more formal expressions of like um you know college university maybe advanced degree programs of that day but also it was like a posture maybe of being a little bit um wanting to be more ground this is my take on it wanting to be more grounded in the practical daily um life of the community and less like theoretical and invested in the realm of ideas, um, which, you know, in some forms that can become anti-intellectualism, anti which is, can be a challenge when communities are like af afraid to engage with um, formal study in whatever area of their community life that entails. Like, um, mm -hmm. but I feel like, so I'm not, the, the part of the question that intrigues me is not necessarily like were these early communities anti-intellectual, but more like what were their expectations for Whistler and the other members to stay grounded and contribute to the lives of others? And like, um, I don't know. I feel like some, and I'm just going to speak from the realm of like religion or theology. I think sometimes since I'm in this interesting context where I've been able to go on and get a doctorate in theology and, um, in the realm of ideas, you know, theologically speaking, you know, you can have all kinds of rich conversations and, but then sometimes trying to serve in a like real life day-to-day -day community, I'm pulled in this, like, I see the tension sometimes of, of, of transferring like theoretical knowledge into like practical like service and of others. And so I guess part of me wants to like think about, was there some element of Whistler's art that was more grounded like was it done i don't know what you could say it was done for the benefit of others but like is there something is there a lesson there like for life in general like the what we create to keep it grounded and not to say we're anti, never to say like we're anti-intellectual or against higher learning i'm very much for it but like how do you keep things grounded and i don't know maybe that's a trail that maybe that's too far off from where we've been but um right um no, I think it's a, that's a really good question. Wait, before I forget, I want to plug this book. Oh yeah, please. <laughs> this is uh, really Alexander Lawrence Ames, The Word in the Wilderness. Wow. Um, this book really is a great uh, scholarly, you know, getting again to the. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's academic, good. But like a great history of um how religion informed fractor and that whole context and um and and gets to you know gets the what you're saying also about uh, how 
refractor was an integral part of um, relationships and people's religious lives, you know, and it wasn't just about somebody's personal um, practice of religion, but also something that they could share with other people. Um, so th that's what I was thinking when you were talking about that um, is like what you're saying, how do we share our, whether it's religious attitudes or just sort of like values and virtues, you know, what, what we feel are important. And maybe that's something that's emergent as we build it with other people, but like, how do we um, convey that? And I think there is a, there is a good, you know, it is good to be skeptical of um, highly intellectualized, um, what do I want to say? You know, like academia or what, the ivory tower, you know, like we, there is a good reason to be skeptical of that because it's often used as a, uh, as a form of sort of social control, right? As a way of telling people that these are the experts and you have to listen to the experts. And if you're not listening to the experts, there's something wrong with you and you need to be controlled, right? Hmm. Um, so, and I think that, that is, uh, you know, maybe not in that those ex extreme ways, but I think it's somehow a part of that tradition, which is that, um, you know, a sort of a skepticism toward a distant central authority mm. or the idea of sort of an elite culture yeah um and paired with a real true you know it's real grounded in the belief that the world uh you know like the world given to us by nature by god is um enough and that is what our focus should be right and oh. that all this intellectualizing um could be used uh against us right mm. um so i think it's you know there are two sides of it maybe there's like yeah. the skepticism but also the yeah. idea that there is a real practice there as you said a, a really down-to-earth mm. person-to-person practice yes. that builds things yeah i feel like um like in my ideal world, um, the best fruits of like research and intellectual discourse are used in the service of the community and are translated and explained in ways that people can benefit from them. And it's not like used as a, a mechanism for control or separation or creating walls between people or stratifications and social status, but it, ideally the best insights and knowledge that we have um, can help other people. So like, I think it's good not to do pit them against each other and say it's one or the other. Like, I think ideally an integrated life could mean we learn the most we can and use our, our mind as much as we can, but then we also use our heart and like try to serve other people at the same time. <laughs> um, but, um, and that, and this is the second part that I, and this may lead us to the end of the podcast is uh, about a quote that you listed uh, when Whistler's book was sold in the 1980s, I believe there was an auction and one of the appraisers had this quote that he said, and I'm going to try to reproduce it here and you can 
correct it if if you would something along the lines of like a person who works with their hands as a laborer um and then mm-hmm. a person who works with their hands and their head is a artisan or wait no is a um what is it called apprentice uh, wait uh what is that called when you do apprenticeship you become a uh what is that term? I forget. Is it craft? But but anyway, but the but the is third it, level was like a person who works with their head and their hands and their heart is an artist, and I right. think he said that before That's, the auction of of this work. Right? Is that accurate? Yeah, and I believe. Yeah, I think that was Clarence Spone, if I'm remembering. Yeah, he was like the person that appraised the work. Um, I think he was reciting or sort of paraphrasing something by John Ruskin. Okay, uh, that was the quote. Um, but yeah, you got it. So, something about someone who works with their head, their hands and their heart as an artist. I think that was the, yeah. And I guess, I mean, for me, I, and I noticed the title of your dissertation talks about the hands of Johannes Whistler, I think, right. Isn't that part of the, the title? Um, so right. like he was working with his hands, like we see the fruits of that in this book. Um, but these other parts of him were engaged too, his mind and his heart, um, and maybe just kind of as a, I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but um, when my dad was living, I remember um, he met my dissertation advisor at my graduation. And you know, he said, you know, the thing I like about Jacob is he loves God from here. And he pointed to my heart <laughs> and then my dissertation advisor without missing a beat quickly pointed to my head and he said, and he also loves God from here. <laughs> and so it was this awkward moment of like two people pointing at different parts of my um of, of, of me, but like, I always go back to that experience. And I think about this idea of integration and like a rich fulfilled life is when we're engaged with our hands, we're engaged with our heart, we're engaged with our mind. And there's like some healthy outlet for what we're doing and it serves other people. And so, I don't know, I feel like there's, there's elements of that in the story of, I mean, just, and part of what we said about Johannes Whistler and seems like there are elements of that in your own interest. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a way to kind of close with that, but do you have any thoughts of you think about this idea of integrating heart and, and mind and hands or like the outwork of your own journey? Um, um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, it's very easy to be like down on what's going on in the world right now. And <laughs> how how things are organized but um you know just again thinking about the you know is there a is is are things organized in such a way where we can do you know work integrate all these parts of ourselves that we want to do and i think it's especially challenging um for us today because there are a lot of forces that sort of are trying to sort of get us to divest our handiwork from where our heart is or what our mind is thinking about, right? Um, or vice versa in any direction. Um, and I think if you're lucky enough to be in a field where you can do something that you think is true to your heart or your, your, you know, what you think is virtuous, then, um, you know, that's, that's a really 
valuable thing. And I think everybody should be allowed that opportunity. Um, and being an educator is very, very much an outlet for in that way for me, you know, just being able to um, sort of reach as many people as I can and give them the opportunities to um, create things and engage in works of art. And, um, but I also, uh, you know, I try to also be a little bit skeptical, like that I'm not just, um, that I'm not just, um, forcing or, you know, trying to inculturate people into some sort of foreign or value system, you know, I mean, there's like high art. I work in the world of museum education with things that come from a very elite class and through, you know, a long historical time frame. And it's really important to have a critical uh, stance on that and make sure that we're not just sort of, again, um, holding that up as like the standard, like the gold standard of hmm. culture, right? And that um, there, that, that when we look at things from culture, um, we, we look at things from like Western culture or, you know, elite culture, it's not necessarily only a critical stance, but also that we're using all this stuff for what we're creating in the here and now, and we can use it in whatever way serves us to create whatever world we want to live in, in the future. Right. Um, so, you know, I think there's something to be said for what modernism did was in a way kick us off into like a, a way of doing that into sort of stripping away the, a lot of cultural assumptions and in a lot of ways it replaced those with others. But, um, yeah, I think it sort of gives us an outlet onto, um, using the past learning from the past and applying it to what we want our future to be wow yeah that's really well said thank you very much matt and i want to thank you again for taking this time to be on the podcast it ends up uh, barney wasn't able to join us but i hope one of these days you'll get to meet him um, but hi, Barney. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Thanks so much. And I also want to thank our audience, those who are watching the YouTube video or, or who are maybe listening to the audio version of the podcast. Thank you for coming along on this journey with us and listening in on this conversation. And we hope that you glean something from it, that it's meaningful to you and continues to speak to you even after you're done listening and that um, we all can learn something and grow in our appreciation just from uh, the time that we spent together today. So thanks again. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>